As I went to medical school and became a psychiatrist, I saw that we weren't addressing the real sea changes that happened in people after trauma, and that often then the person who suffered the trauma wasn't aware of it and had a completely changed life trajectory or conception of self without any awareness of that having happened. So if you Google the word trauma, you'll likely find that the top search results arrive in some form of the question, what is trauma? And this then begs the next question, well, what are we really talking about when we're talking about trauma? In today's episode, Dr. Paul Conti and I unpack what trauma is, what it means to have experienced trauma, and what makes trauma so hard to resolve. We don't stop there, though. What I found fascinating in this conversation was the idea that there are actually these four types of trauma he describes that we can experience and how if we create safe spaces to talk about and support one another through this, we can more readily recognize who we were before trauma occurred and who we want to be after and get to that place. So a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine, Paul completed his psychiatry training at Stanford and Harvard. And now living in Portland, Oregon, and founding his own clinic, he serves patients and clinics throughout the United States internationally, including the executive leadership of large organizations. And he's the author of Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. The thing is, Paul talks about trauma not just as an academic pursuit, but also from a personal perspective and experience, having lost his brother to suicide when Paul was just 25 years old. And as a result of his training and experience, Paul really urges us to remember that we're all in this together and shared humanity is more important now than ever for our healing to begin. And at around the 53-ish minute mark, Paul gives us two prescriptions to take action on. One as a societal prescription and the other for us individually. So quick note, if it's not evident from what I've already shared before diving in, trauma and suicide are discussed in this conversation with the lens of care and compassion. And still we understand these topics are sensitive and may be triggering to some. So please take care when choosing to listen and honor your own personal sensitivities and needs. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So as we have this conversation, you are mental health professional, went to Stanford, Harvard, uh, degree in psychiatry, and have really seems like devoted so much of your adult life to the world of mental illness and, and particularly trauma. For you, this is not an academic pursuit. For you, this is personal, um, starting really with your family. Tell me a bit about the, you know, the, the experience that, that um, you've had in your family and what you've discovered, I guess, you know, in a more broad notion about your family that really sort of inspired, lit the fire, became the inciting incident for your devotion. Mm-hmm. Well, I was so struck by how trauma changed so much inside each each person in the family and then also how we were all together as a family that that there you know there was no way of of me understanding in advance you know what the impact would be and how far reaching it would be and i think the surprise of that and the shock of that and the awareness of change you know including awareness of change in myself that oh it's it's not you know, just that there's grief afterwards, which of course grief is enough to have really weighing on us. But but in addition to that, it was a, a real shift in conception about the world, and you know whether it was a, a a safe place that could be navigated or a scary place to be avoided, and whether it held opportunity or it held malice. That that there was a whole shift towards really feeling beleaguered and feeling under threat and and incapable and incompetent and and all of these like really profoundly negative things that just weren't in me before and and I think because I was already I was a young adult right and I'd come through a, um so a significant part of life w- without major trauma I was struck by just how much everything changed and that there weren't there wasn't an understanding of that around me, you know, that even in getting help from other people, you know, there wasn't this framing that like, oh, like, okay, everything is different for you now. So we've got to help you like anchor to what, you know, was true, that still is true, even though, you know, you don't have that awareness in you at the moment that there there, there wasn't that 
conception of it. So even the helping resources it had those limitations, which I saw then, you know, in the mental health field, as I went to medical school and became a psychiatrist, I saw that, that we, we weren't addressing the real sea changes that happened in people after trauma. And that often then the, the person who suffered the trauma wasn't aware of it and had a completely changed life trajectory or conception of self without any awareness of that having happened. Hmm. Tell me what actually happened. So you're referencing you know, something that happens in your life um, that traumatizes you and your family. What, what actually unfolds? The event was the suicide of my youngest brother. So my brother, Jonathan, committed suicide when he was 20 years old. And at the time, I was 25 years old and um, had gotten through a lot of life without major trauma. And then everything really changed at that point in ways that were kind of scary. And I could could see that if, you know, without a course correction, that, you know, things could have gone to a place that really would not have been okay for me. Hmm. When that happens in your life, I know so often the question is, you know, why did this happen? What, you know, like there's, I think so often we try and create a rational overlay for experiences like right. that, for something that is profoundly irrational right. and try to understand what, what happened here. But also, you know, it marks us, you know, and whether it is an experience that is as awful as what you and your, your family experienced or anything that really leaves a dent in us in so many different ways. I'm, I'm curious though, trauma and grief seem to be deeply related, but not the same. And I'm curious how you would tease out the, the distinction between them or maybe how they actually relate and, and are also different. Mm-hmm. So trauma, whether it's an acute trauma or it's a chronic trauma or even a trauma we experience through someone else, right? It gives us cause for grief, right? for, for sadness, right? For a, a sense of loss, for you know, people or feelings or sensations that are missing inside of us that that we need to come to terms with in order to move forward with life. But trauma also creates in us the very mechanisms that prevent us from experiencing and processing grief. So, for example, we, we can't process grief. So, so experience, I, I feel sadness, I feel lost, you know, my, my world is rocked, right? And, and I, I need to let myself experience that and let myself feel sad and let myself feel despairing while still moving forward with life and, and attending to the things that are important to me, right? The people, the goals, the drives inside of us, right? We, we need to, to do all of that. That's the navigation, the experience and navigation of grief. But we can't do that if we're, for example, feeling guilty and responsible. Right, you know, it, it, it blocks any forward movement of grief. So the fact that trauma, in the vast majority of cases, creates a reflexive shame inside of us, right? And you know, that shame comes with a, a sense of responsibility, feelings of guilt, feelings of being cursed, or you know, marked for unhappiness, and and like that stops us from experiencing and processing grief, which can then stay with us over years and years in ways you know, that, that really further and perpetuate that change because you know we're we're grieving but we're, we're we're stuck almost in a suspended animation of the misery of grief without being able to move forward and through it if we're held back by in the most common case sense a sense of guilt and shame about the trauma and i was very much struck 
by that, even further along in my career, as I would see over and over again and then reflect back on my own life, how trauma brings grief and it also brings the guilt and shame that prevent us from navigating grief. Hmm. If you think about trauma and grief also, I wonder if the circumstance for trauma or if the circumstance for grief, if it is possible to get to that place without actually having trauma be a part of the equation, like, can you actually separate the two? Um, In which case, every time you would have an experience that would lead to the possibility of grief, trauma, it seems like I'm trying to imagine even a, a scenario where trauma would not be a part of the circumstance that would lead to that, which creates this confounding variable, which makes the whole thing so much harder to actually be with uh, and move through and process. Right, right. So anything that would give, a, I think, would give us cause for grief, right, is, I think, almost like by definition, traumatic, right? right? Even if we're we're grieving over you know, the, the, the deaths in the world around us, right? The, the impact of the pandemic. I mean, even if we're grieving in that way and it's not, say, personalized, right? It's not that a person knows someone who's, who's been lost, right? We're, we're, we're grieving for something that's, that's vicariously happened in the world around us. We feel that, right? So even in a scenario like that, we're, we're grieving even though we're not personally impacted, right? We're, we're still impacted by something traumatic. So, you know, that's where even in the, the case of vicarious trauma, something that doesn't directly happen to a person, right? The, the, you still need the trauma to evoke the grief, even if the, the grief is for others or for others that we don't know. So I, I, I think... Anything that brings grief is arising from trauma. And as you said, we have that, you know, that, that almost that catch 22, right? That if it's making, if it's making the need for, for grieving and navigating through grief, there's the danger of all the things that trauma raises in us, you know, shame and all of the accomplices of shame that then prevent us from navigating through the grief without us knowing it. So there's something, you know, very, it's ironic in a menacing way that, that I think is the reason why, you know, I see people over and over again who are suffering through the immediacy of trauma that happened many, many years ago. And you think, well, how can that be the case? That there, there hasn't been any progression through the impact of grief. And then it's always the same answer that the other consequences of trauma prevent that navigation. And there's sort of a suspended animation of then misery that plays out over time. And then, of course, can lead to so many other problems. So, you know, one being the, the appeal of in the short term of soothing with substances, right? It's so much of a of an, a go to in the society around us because it's there to soothe us. And the more that we're stuck in grief in this suspended animation of misery, the more the appeal of unhealthy things that can soothe us in the moment, but lead us towards disaster in our you know, in our lives. The, the the more at risk we are for depression, the more at risk we are for panic attacks and sleep disturbance, and and the kind of things that make us turn away from life. Mm. So we've used the word trauma a whole bunch in just the first few minutes here. And it occurs to me, it it probably makes sense for us to actually talk about what are we actually talking about when we're talking about trauma? What is this thing called trauma? Mm-hmm. The trauma is anything that overwhelms our coping skills. Right? It overwhelms us and then it makes change in us that stays with us as we move forward, which doesn't mean that we can't 
work through that and, and make things better. But that would be the default of it, right? That it overwhelms us, it impacts us, and then there's no sort of automatic resolution to it, right? It's not like a bruise where you just keep going through life and okay, that bruise will heal, right? It's something inside of us that then takes on a life of its own and isn't healed by any natural process inside of us, which of course raises the risk that it festers inside of us and that it it then gets worse over time or leads to a cascade effect or a domino effect, which is why you can see that trauma changes a person's mood for the worse, changes their anxiety um, in a way that makes it higher, impacts their sleep negatively. And now the person is engaging in life in a different way and they're not as attentive to the people in the world around them or to their ambition or their, their career choice. And, and, and you know, you, you see that a person's whole world can change, right? And it changes as a result of being overwhelmed, being impacted that way, and then not having the means or the resources or the knowledge or understanding or help around us in order to course correct back to where we were or who we were before the trauma. Mm. When you describe it this way, part of me is wondering if something happens, which in the blink of an eye or a sustained experience causes this level of disruption. The, The question that keeps lingering for me is why can't we readily rewrite that script? Is there something literally physiological that changes in us? Is it psychological? Is it a belief set? Is there wiring that gets rewired in a radically short period of time that then becomes profoundly hard to to unwire or, or wire differently? What happens during this experience that makes it so hard, that makes it different from a bruise that just over time resolves itself? <laughs> we have an incredible the treasure trove of of scientific knowledge about this. So, you know, not that long ago, a lot of this was conjectural, right? We could see changes in people. We could see that they persisted over time, but we couldn't link all of that to its sort of neurobiological underpinnings, right? Its psychological underpinnings. And now we we can, right? You know, the, 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 the magic in the brain, right, is in its connectivity, Right. And, and what we see are these profound connectivity shifts where, for example, the parts of our brain that are about vigilance, right? That are about threat perception become so dialed up that we then notice the world differently around us, right? So, you know, one example being what lights up in our brain if we see a stranger approach, right? A stranger who's, who just looks benign, right? Is, do, do we respond with, a, with interest, right? Or do we respond with fear that makes us want to avoid, right? And, and creates a whole cascade of other changes inside of us. And we can see the difference in people who are carrying trauma with them and how their brains respond, for example, even to just the appearance of uh, on the scene of another person, right? And we know that it, that trauma can change how our genes are expressed, right? Mm. So, so is a gene active or not active, right? You know, this is the, the, the field of epigenetics, right? Which is not just what, what are our genetic predeterminants, right? What are the genes inside of us, right? But more importantly, are they active or not active, right? Because if you have a gene and it's turned off or it's passed along in a way where it's either on or off in a, in a way that's different, right? then we've changed the expression of the genetic code within us. And we know that that can happen not just in the person who suffered the trauma, but that it can be passed along years later. 
So it can be passed along to children who not only weren't born, but weren't even thought of yet, you know, or are years, you know, come years after the trauma. So the fact that this changes us and it changes, you know, on the deepest levels, the, the functioning of our brain, our interface with the world, and even how our genetics manifest themselves is, is really now an incredibly powerful scientific underpinning of what trauma is and what it does to us. Mm. The way you describe the epigenetic side also, I mean, my, when I think about generational trauma, gener- you know, trauma that, that, that appears to be passed from generation to generation, I guess my earlier understanding was that, that very often that was because somebody either witnessed it, like it, it was vicarious, which became embodied, and then it gets passed on. You know, maybe they were in a household with three generations where they saw trauma in one generation, and then people were literally around the, if it was violent or whatever that caused this. But what you're saying is something different, which is not a this or, but a yes and. Yes and. Trauma can literally alter the epigenetic state or the expression of certain genes in an individual. And that state is heritable through multiple generations. So we can literally, through the process of genetics, pass trauma on to kids who may not even be... (laughs) They, you know, like within our immediate worldview in any meaningful way, shape, or form. And I would imagine that that then gets passed on through multiple generations beyond that. Yes. Yes. And that I think we, we need a scientific underpinning in order to realize the immensity of the impact upon us. I mean, I think we can look at the world around us and we can see that, mm-hmm. but it is nonetheless extremely powerful to have that scientific underpinning, right? To realize the truth of what you just said, right? Which which is so different from, you know, the the idea that oh, people should pick themselves up and move on, right? Like you know, we we hear so much of, um, even at times in a well-meaning way, right? Of a, a real minimization, right? Of the impact of trauma on us, and and it's part of why I wrote about trauma. I mean, I, I didn't set out to write about trauma, but. In doing the work that I do, I, I would see over and over and over and over again, right, how trauma had changed someone and how that change was moving forward with them through life, how it was impacting the people around them and how it, it would change an entire life trajectory in a way that you could just look ahead and see would be generational, right? With, without the kind of interventions to course correct. And it's that realization that there's something going on here that we don't understand that is changing us as we move forward and we're not aware of the change, right? And then, you know, in, in mapping that too and understanding more and more well, what was going on in me after some of the traumas in my own life, because they happened before I had any medical training, right? right. And, and to see w- w- it with this sort of new clarity what the impact had been on me and how difficult it was over the years to try and navigate back to where I was before, it was, was a, a huge part of the impetus to write about trauma, because I think in many ways, you know, in a way similar to, you know, the, the invasion of the body snatchers, right? You know, the, the movie, right, where like people fall asleep and then they're different afterwards. And, and like, and, and no one else can know that, right? Because they look the same on the outside. That, you know, this idea of how insidious that is, right? You know, of how terrifying that is, right? That's why the invasion of the body snatchers is a horror movie, right? That, you know, there's this process that's happening that we are very often inflicting upon one another, 
right? Mm. That 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 rises to that level of you know of horror of what's happening in us and our uh, and our lack of awareness so often of what's happening in us that. You know, it, it struck me in a way that little else in life has in terms of like learning something about life and learning like this is how this is working. And I know this because I'm just seeing this play out over and over again in, in people from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic strata, right? Like, like the, 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 it's, it became so clear that this is, a, is profoundly a human problem. Mm. When somebody's experiencing like that level of trauma, and as you described, you look the same on the outside, but behaviorally you're different and you're going to relate to people differently and they're going to relate to you differently. Um, but it sounds like one of the things that it, that is also a, a quality of being in a state of trauma is that you're not necessarily entirely aware of how you are different, of how you're moving through the world differently. You're probably, I would guess, aware of the fact that people are responding to you differently. The world is responding to you differently. You may be struggling relationally. And as you shared earlier, it sounds like shame is something that tends to touch down on a fairly regular basis. So I'm, I'm curious how like someone would experience the demise of so much of the way that they were in the world and then the quality and the depth and the nature of their relationships and the weight of shame dropping into the world, yet be unaware of the fact that there's something deeper that shifted within them that actually it underlies all of this. Right. When a person has awareness, that awareness is so often through the lens of shame, right? Mm. It's my fault, or I'm just a terrible person, or, you know, nobody likes me and why should they, right? You know, the, the, the fact that trauma evokes in us or arouses in us, you know, t- technically, right, what is called affect, it technically is aroused in us, meaning it's created without our choice, right? And trauma arouses shame. And shame leads us to create stories that are stories of self-blame, right? They're stories of why we're not good enough, of, you know, why we're cursed, why we can't make our way in the world. And the, the reflection then of like, why, why are things not going as well for me, right, is it comes often through the lens of, well, because it's, it's my fault. Mm. And that then perpetuates the original story of trauma. Right. You know, the, in a sense, validates why the trauma happened. Right. It happened because I'm a bad person, which is borne out or validated by the bad things that happen after trauma. Right. And like that's a very, very dangerous and self-referential. Right. You know, story. Right. That, that then often moves forward. Right. And. That's in cases when, when a person is aware, right? Now, sometimes there's a mixed awareness, right? Sometimes there's not an awareness because trauma, it, it changes our memories, right? The, so our memories are enlivened by the emotion that we attach to our memories. And if, if the memories are now associated with a different kind of emotion, it changes our understanding of what that memory means. So the mm. example I'll give at times was, you know, of a person who, you know, won an award at some point earlier in life that was really a grounding, you know, I- event for them of excitement and happiness and, and, and feeling good and hopeful that the person could do good things in the world, right? And then after trauma, the memory now has a, a very negative emotion attached to it, even though the trauma happened years after the memory, because now the person feels guilty, uh, they feel ashamed of themselves. And when they remember that, they attach a different emotion to it. And it might be an emotion of, oh, someone just gave me that, or there's the highlight of my life. And 
you know, nothing good happening after that. And, and you know, it's just, well, and that's a real example, but it's, it's one example among countless of the past changing in a way that sort of modernist literature around, you know, the, the, the turn from the 19th to the 20th century was, you know, and into the early 20th century was writing about how events in the present can change the past, right? Because if it changes our view of the past and our beliefs of the past, then we are changed retrospectively. And, and that's often what we see is a combination of those two things where, where the old memories are now changed because of the negative emotion. Hmm. So that takes away the ability to see and understand the change. And now the person feels bad about themselves through that lens of, of shame and guilt. And now they're attributing so much of the negativity to what's bad about themselves, right? And, and now you can see how we have a very slippery slope towards what often is life disaster, right? Like, like I see that this leads to people dying, I see things that are that lead up to that right where where it changes you know a person suffers from depression more and their life trajectory sort of levels out I mean we see all sorts of bad things, but up to and including death and 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 this all having a sort of final common pathway at times that that leads to misery and ultimately to death is is not uncommon. And, and that also struck me of, of how often that happened and wasn't understood. Right? You know, the idea that, oh, that person's cause of death was a car accident. That person's cause of death was an overdose, right? And then I would see, okay, I understand that's the actual cause of physical death, but that's not the important factor here, right? You know, the, what was the actual cause of death was so often trauma, and then that cascade of consequences of trauma. Mm, yeah, you got to trace it back up the chain. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you talk about trauma also, I, I think when most people hear that word, they probably think, well, you know, it is one particular incident that happens to you as an individual in a moment in time. You actually deconstruct it into sort of like different types. I think there are four different types that you describe. Walk me through how they're different and why that's important to understand. So the, the, the primary types of trauma are acute, chronic, and vicarious. Right? And acute trauma is, of course, the, the, the easiest to understand. And, and our interest in trauma societally really comes through the lens of, of trauma in military situations, in combat situations. So something acutely happens, right? Someone is injured. Uh, someone witnesses people being hurt or killed in battle, right? So we, we often see trauma through the lens of acute incidents, which, which of course makes sense. I mean, much of, of trauma happens acutely, an assault, an accident, an illness, the death of someone. But trauma can also be chronic. So for an example of so chronic denigration over time, right? So a person who, say, through either a socioeconomic lens or an ethnic lens or a religious lens is seen by the immediate world around them as less than, right? And, and then has to navigate life uh, under the weight of that, right? Under the impact of, of being seen in this different way. And which then, of course, often leads to internalization of that negativity, right? Of, of feeling that way about themselves or feeling beleaguered by the world around them, feeling vulnerable and assailed by the world around them. And there's a chronic process there, the process of disenfranchisement, right? The process of being denigrated by the world around us that, that produces the same effect in us. So it's, it's less dramatic, right? And, and therefore it calls our attention less, but it, it can be no less impactful. So there's acute trauma, there's chronic trauma, and then vicarious trauma really arises from, you know, this wonderful fact about us, which is that, that we have empathy, right? And we can feel other people's pain and suffering, which, which can lead us to help them and them to help us, right? Like this is rooted in something that's very good, but it means that other people's pain and suffering can impact us in some cases as if it were our own. We lose the boundary between self and other, which again, part of that can be the beauty of empathy or the beauty of sympathy, right? But in losing that barrier, we can be impacted by what other people are suffering. And, and we see this very classically in, say, first responders, right, to disaster situations. So there's, there's one way that that's obvious and clear. 
But so much of that is pervading our world and accessible, say, through social media, right? Where, you know, one can look at trauma-inducing images or listen to trauma-inducing words 24 hours a day. And and, and often people do too much of that, not because we're trying to hurt ourselves, right? But because we feel insecure, we feel vulnerable, and we want to learn more in order to try and reassure ourselves and get some sense of, of safety in the world. And then inadvertently, what we do is sort of fill ourselves with the trauma in the world around us, right? And it, it creates fear and, and vulnerability in us. And, and that's, a, that's a way in which we can become vicariously traumatized. I mean, we know this is true because it, it looks the same hmm. in the brain when it happens. You, you can look at the brain through that neurobiological logical lens of trauma. And it's not like there's a marker for, oh, that's an acute trauma that happened in combat. Oh, that is a chronic trauma that that person suffered over time because of their sexual orientation. Or, oh, that's vicarious trauma because of too much news or because of it being a first person. No, it looks all the same in the brain, which I believe is the, is the proof of that concept. Mm, that's fascinating. So, so literally like all three variations um there, when you look at how they actually land, like what is the actual net effect in somebody's brain and somebody's body, you can't distinguish between them, even though from the outside looking in, I would imagine if you ask the average person, you know, um, would the effect of an acute trauma be the same as this sort of like chronic low grade thing that you're living with for months or years? I would imagine most people would kind of almost write off the latter and like clearly acknowledge right. the impact of the former I, I wonder in in your practice, if you've seen over the years also, do people tend to struggle more with acknowledging the fact that chronic trauma or vicarious trauma can affect them at, on the same level that something that they would imagine to be more acute would? Yes. I mean, I see people struggling with, with acknowledgement and validation of their trauma across the board, mm. right? Because even, say, a tremendous acute trauma, you would think, okay, that person can understand, gosh, that terrible thing happened to me. But often because of the magnitude of the trauma, the magnitude of guilt and shame mm. is so high. Right? right, so so therein go the self blaming and the, all those all those mechanisms. Um, so I see it across the board, but but absolutely, you know, a, a person who's suffering from chronic trauma is often so ready to discount that. Right, it makes it easier to invalidate the self. You know, an example of a person who didn't have uh, trauma based on, say, race, religion, right? And then moves to a place where now the person is suffering from that. And, you know, that's played out over years of a change in the person's sense of safety in the world around them. And they're, they're feeling that they are welcome in the world, that they can they can be themselves, they can move their lives forward, that where all of that has shifted, right? And I can see that it's shifted. But the person is very resistant to acknowledging that because it becomes easy for them to minimize it, mm -hmm. right? But it sort of has to be acknowledged because, well, in, in order to, to for the person to be healthier, right? Because in acknowledging it, then the person can regain access, right, to how they felt about themselves, right, before these changes, right? The hopefulness they felt, the sense of belonging they felt, you know, the the, the lack of a sense of vulnerability and alienation. So the, the, the chronic traumas have to be acknowledged just as much as the acute traumas in order for us to, in a sense, get our arms around it and move forward, which we can do. I mean, a very hopeful message of my book is that we, 
we can make this better. I mean, in many ways, it's incredibly complicated, right? The processes that happen in the brain and the epigenetic processes, but in, in the ways that are most practically important, right? We don't have to understand every aspect of brain functioning, right? Which, which you probably never will as human beings. It's so complicated. We don't have to in order to help each other. Right? We can ground to these basic principles of, for example, a safe place to talk about trauma, to talk about how we feel, to talk about the things that frighten us, the changes we see in ourselves, right? to re-anchor ourselves to who we knew we were before trauma or who we aspire to be after trauma. Like, th- th- this is not rocket science in that it- it- it's not incredibly complicated to do that, but we often don't do it anyway. In fact, our healthcare systems are set up to look for quick fixes. So, oh, oh, your mood is lower, right? Okay, well, let's give you a medicine to improve your mood a little bit. And, you know, instead of looking at, well, why is your mood lower, right? What is going on in you, right? What is your history? When did your mood become lower, right? What are your life experiences that can impact that? Like we, you know, we, we don't look deep enough. We scratch the surface, address symptoms, and then move forward. And, and that's why I think we, have, we as a populace, we as a, as a population of people are not getting healthier, right? And, and I think, you know, we see that in like the numbers of the opiate epidemic, for example, you know, the, the political infighting that, that prevents us from saying, how about we start with, with as many of us as possible not dying, right? And then we can have our political infighting, right? But, the, but you know, the infighting comes first, right? And, and like how we're doing this to ourselves, I, I believe, because we have an accumulated and accumulating weight of trauma that is evident as we look at our behavior in the world around us and how it's impacting us as a society. So it, it, this is so pervasive. This underlies so much of what ails us, and certainly the last few years have piled onto that in, in almost every imaginable way. What is going on in the world of medicine, in the world of healthcare, that is stopping? You know, what's going on in the world, in the industry, in the, in the educational side, that's sort of like setting this up in a way where instead of saying, oh, there's trauma here, let's go deeper and try and figure out how do we actually deal with the trauma that underlies this thing? That the the it seems like the dominant approach is let's treat what's happening on the surface and not actually even ask the question. Is there if we track this back, are we talking about is there a, a much bigger gap that needs to be addressed in terms of sort of like the fundamental way the paradigm of medicine and the educational system are set up? Yeah, I, I would argue that we have developed a culture of rapid and if possible immediate gratification, right? That we, we develop a very short-term view of ourselves and, and for, of our health, right? So we then approach problems in a way that is extremely narrow in focus. So you, you think about you know, how much money we spend on healthcare in the United States and how you, know, you could look at any of many, many metrics of like, are, are we doing a good job? And the answer is no. Right. You know, we are good at addressing acute, highly sophisticated problems. Right. Complex surgeries. Right. Um, You know, molecular advancements in certain treatments. We're very good at that. But when it comes to the big picture of are we taking care of ourselves? Right. We have gotten farther and farther away from that. So one example being their countries, I believe uh, the Netherlands is one that that use about 20 percent as much medicines, as many medicines as we do. 
right? Because there's there's a holistic focus of you know if you, if you don't feel healthy and you know your, your cholesterol is too high, of like looking at how how are you taking care of yourself? What what is your lifestyle? Right? Are you exercising? Are you utilizing diet? Right? There, there's a, there's a whole sense of looking at a person longitudinally in terms of their health, whereas we have a reflex of like fix that problem now. Okay, so your cholesterol is high. We will give you a medicine to lower your cholesterol. Done, right? And that that is you know, a way of, it says, polishing the hood when there's a problem in the engine. And, and sure, that looks good for a little bit, but, but it, it's not an answer to the question. And, you know, we, we have a for-profit healthcare system that, that, you know, is so, in many ways, so fragmented, right, that, that the, the systems that are providing the healthcare have a strong incentive to just look at the short term, right? People aren't staying with insurers over time. They're, you know, switching from one insurer to another. So you, 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 you look at like what needs to be done now and how do we do that as inexpensively as possible? So that decreases human time, right? It increases the use of medicines and, and really the end goal then becomes throughput and profit and not health. And, and and I just don't think there's any way. And, and I, I'm, I'm firmly, I, I believe in the capitalist system. I think that there are, that, that capitalism has done us a great deal of good and can continue to do so. But we have a system now that just isn't working. So I'm I'm not saying let's socialize medicine, everything will be great, right? But to step back and look at what choices are we making? How are we spending the money, the resources that we have in our healthcare system? How are we using, for example, the people in the healthcare system? I, I think that it is egregious. And, and I would go as, as far as to, to really, I really feel this way, heartbreaking, mm-hmm. to see how people are treated who are working in the healthcare system. Doctors and nurses and technicians and respiratory therapists and his people who are working in these systems who are so overburdened, right, by, by systems that aren't taking care of the people getting the care or the people giving the care. And then this term arises of a oh, burnout, right? People in the healthcare system are, are, are getting burnout. I mean, you know, when I was younger, burnout was an insult, to say to somebody, right? Like that was, you get in a fight saying somebody's a burnout, right? It's saying, well, that person can't do it. That person can't cope, right? Instead of saying, how about people who are stuck in a system that is treating them sadistically as they're trying to what? Take care of the rest of us. I mean, by any metric of, of stepping back and looking at it, we have a broken system. And that broken system isn't looking at even the basics of how we're taking care of our, our weight, our diet, our exercise, right? How is that system going to actually look at trauma, right? It's something that requires human attention and human attention across time. So, you know, we don't go to the root cause of problems. And we know that well over 50% of medical problems, general medical problems people present with come from mental health reasons. So instead of psychiatry or mental health being a specialty, right, this idea of the pyramid of medicine, I think the pyramid of medicine should rest in a, a, on a foundation of mental health that then wraps around that pyramid in a way that would improve our health physically and mentally, decrease our need for care within the physical health system, and start looking at the root cause of many of our problems. But again, we don't do that. And we operate within this broken system that is always looking at today, right? You know, what what are we doing today? How are we getting everybody through today? We're not looking at the long term of like, are we taking care of ourselves? Or are we driving ourselves into a spiral that is going to perhaps end in a place where we don't even have a functioning society anymore? 
And I, I don't think that that's alarmist or unreasonable to say. I think it's an unavoidable observation of just looking at the world around us. Mm. Completely agree from the outside looking in. You know, you have a very different perspective, but just when you look at the state of the world, when you have the state of of the way that healthcare workers um, seem to be um, and the way that patients, you know, like are showing up for the same thing over and over and over again. And I think also, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is, yes, we have a paradigmatic problem here. Yes. And it's not, it's very hard to say, well, like this person or entity is to blame. It's like, we all play a role in this system. Like when I show up as somebody who's suffering and I say, give me the pill. And that is all that I want right now. And, you know, like the provider knows there's actually something, if we really want to resolve this, there's something deeper that we need to explore. We're both doing, you know, like we're we're doing this dance where everybody sort of like has, has a role to play. I wonder if what's gone on over the last two years, if the depth and the pervasiveness of suffering, um, my sense is it is leading so many people to re-examine their relationship with themselves, with their well-being, with their mental health. And I think mental health has become so much more a focus of conversation and something that is a focus of conversation without the level of stigma that we had even five, 10 years ago, that I wonder if there's an opening that we have right now. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about the possibility of the moment that we happen to be in right now to make change. Yeah, I think we're really at a fork in the road. Right. I, I think we are really at a fork in the road where our suffering as a planet, um, certainly as a nation over the last couple of years, can lead us to examine anew how we are interacting with one another, how we are taking care of ourselves. And and part of the message that I, I, I very much hope to spread is that we're all in this together. Like we, we, you know, we, we all have our traumas to deal with. We all have our vulnerabilities. We're living on this planet that, you know, that we all have to live on together if we're going to stay alive, right? And can we look at that in the context of the shared trauma of the last couple of years and without the stigma that leads people to not acknowledge what is going on in ourselves, right? Can we, can we get around that and sort of approach fr- from trying to find consensus and collaboration to, to make things better, right? Going back to the first principles of what we're doing or not doing to take care of ourselves. Can we get over that hurdle through the shared experience of trauma? And instead of it dividing us, it brings us together. And then with a common sense view, we stand back and we look at what's going on and we think about ways to make it better. Like that's a possible outcome of this. But the other branch in the, the other fork in the road is a possibility too, where the trauma of the last couple of years is in many ways dividing us more and more. Mm. So you think of the decline of rational political discourse, where like, how often do you see two people where where they have diametrically opposed views and are being respectful to one another, right? I mean, we we know the trauma polarizes us too, where people feel afraid and, and feel vulnerable and feel disempowered. And then there becomes an assertion of self. And we're at the point where we often can't even agree on what truth is. So something very as obvious as one plus one is two people will be expressing disagreement about. Now, that's not about whether one doesn't understand that one plus one is two, right? It's it's a matter of, are we going to be grounded to truth and to facts, or are we just so beleaguered that we just want to assert ourselves, right? Which would say, if we're arguing about something, I really don't care if you're right or I'm right, right? I just want, I want to be mad at you because I feel impotent and angry. And how much of this do we have going on in the world around us that threatens to make us more and more and more callous? 
jealous of other people's suffering. And I do think we've seen that over the last several years where, oh, it's another shooting and, you know, okay, let's, let's make that a gun control argument and move forward. Like, what about the people who lost people? You know, what about the cascade effect on the people around them? Like, there's so much that goes on that we just cast aside and move forward instead of thinking of the real human toll. You know, even the thought of how we spend our resources and and even how many people are there suffering after being 9-11 responders, right? That could, could we take care of them better? Like even we're going back you know, we're going back years now to a group of people that we all agreed did something heroic for all of us, right? And are, are we optimally taking care of them? Are we helping take care of their children if they're now disabled, either physically or emotionally and can't work, right? I mean, it's just to me, it's such a salient example of something that I think is is worth our time, attention, resources, right? But, you know, we can we skip over that and how many thousands of other you know, uh, tragic events since then where we just move forward instead of stopping and thinking, what are we doing here as this cascade of trauma spreads and spreads and spreads and spreads to the point where now I believe it's spread through our whole society. And we're going to have to decide together through a process of discourse, are we going to take the branch where we realize, hey, enough is enough. Like, let's look at how we're taking care of ourselves, including how we're speaking to one another, right? And what we're, what we have in our minds about one another, you know, if, if, if a person isn't in complete agreement with everything I think and feel, like, are we, are we going to go that way, you know, in a way that's divisive, or are we going to overcome that and think again that, hey, we're all here together, and if we're not going to, you know, drown or burn the entire planet or, you know, destroy each other, you know, individually, right, we, we better make some changes. I mean, I think that is so starkly in front of us now. Mm, completely agree. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So 
We're sitting in this moment right now. You have a prescription pad and you can write two scripts, one for individuals who are experiencing trauma and one for society. Um, let's take them one at a time. You're writing the script for society at this moment in time. What, uh, what, what goes on that prescription pad? Like, what are we talking about? What are the things that really, really are important for us to be thinking about and doing? Well, for society, the prescription would, I think, would say to take a step back and look at everything that's not about you, right? Because we, you know, we, we tend, I think, more and more to see society through the lens of ourselves. You know, what do I want? And it takes us away from the truth that like that's what society means is more than one person. And, you know, maybe on that prescription would be, you know, go find somebody that your reflex is to think, you know, you, you can't stand it as nothing like you. Go find somebody who looks different from you, dresses differently from you, has a, a, a sexual orientation or, a gender, or uh, a gender perspective that's different from yours, right? Go, go find somebody who you feel is different, right? And find the shared humanity, right? That, that's when we begin to overcome our societal differences instead of just looking at how's that person different from me, how they look, what they believe, um, what they eat, you know, where they worship. We, we look so much for differences and can we go out and find similarities? And I think if we can think beyond ourselves and challenge ourselves, what we find is shared humanity. That's why people love these stories, right? Where you see, oh, somebody dialed the wrong number and, uh, you know, on Thanksgiving day and it was somebody, and then you see a picture and like the people are totally different, right? And like, wait, okay, they're totally different from the outside, but they're not totally different on the inside, right? And like, that's why that's such a heartwarming story. And, you know, why can't we have millions of stories like that, right? Why can't we all go do that and remind ourselves that we, we live in a society together and we've become so much more sensitized to looking for differences? How am I not like you, right? Which means how are you going to be against me? as opposed to searching for the shared humanity that's really the truth. I mean, this country is a, is a melting pot, right? I mean, it really is true that, that, that it, it could take in and accept and grow and be enriched by people who are vastly different in, in so many ways. Like, that's a wonderful thing. And maybe we could celebrate that a little bit more in ways that aren't just theoretical, but can be very, very practical in how we approach the world around us and the other people that are in it with us. Mm-hmm. So that's what's on our, um, our society prescription. Um, let's take it down to the level of the individual, whether somebody has experienced acute direct trauma, whether it's chronic, whether it's vicarious, which I would have to imagine <laughs> there are probably more people walking around having experienced some level of vicarious trauma or given the last few years than not at this point. When we look at, okay, so what, what do we do with that? What should we start to be thinking about? I'll give a much more concise prescription that you could probably write actually on okay. the prescription pad. <laughs> I'd say less news, reflect on what is going on inside of you and talk to somebody about it and be nice to someone else today. That would be the prescription for each individual person, right? I think we could all benefit from less news, which doesn't mean I think we should be uninformed, but I see the constant clicking of the, you know, the news feed and what's, what's new, what's changed, really doing a lot of damage. 
in people. So less news, reflect upon what's going on inside of you. So, so many of us, we don't reflect on our inner dialogue. What are we saying over and over and over again inside of our minds, right? To take stock of what's going on inside of us and to communicate about it. That's a start in taking stock of ourselves, even if there's not the weight of trauma there. But very often, some aspect of that taking stock of ourselves reveals or speaks to the trauma inside of us. And then we can communicate with trusted people around us. And now we have a start towards understanding ourselves and moving forward in ways that maybe we weren't going to be able to before. Mm. And just being nice to someone around us. I mean, in many ways, that may sound kind of trite, but it makes a difference. It, it makes a difference to the person we're kind to, and it feels good, right? It, it shows us that we're not impotent, right? You know, we, we, we aren't just vulnerable and afraid and powerless to change the world around us, right? If we can do something for someone else, it reminds us of the good and the, the power inside of us. So I, I would, would write a very uh, a brief and con- well, hopefully more concise prescription that way, because I think that that benefits all of us. And then that, of course, rolls into the societal prescription of, of looking at us as the aggregate of human beings that we truly are. Yeah. And it sounds like, especially with that last one, being, you know, be kind to someone else, like, do like, that, well, well, of course, that we should have easy access to that. But for somebody who is in the grips of profound trauma, that actually may be an excruciatingly difficult thing to access. Um, because right. if you're moving into the world from this place, and literally, like you've been relating to everyone around you from a place of aggression or wounding or shame right. to actually muster up the energy, the will to just right. let that guard down, be kind for a heartbeat. On the surface, it sounds like, well, sure, everybody can like do something kind. But for somebody who's in the grips of trauma, this is actually probably pretty heavy lift, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think you're pointing out, uh, that's such a great point. You're pointing out something so important, which is that be nice to somebody doesn't imply like, oh, we're all going around like being actively mean to people, right? But but often being nice to someone is 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 an act of vulnerability on the part of the person doing it. That, that hey, I, I've got to feel that I've got something to offer. I, I've got to expose myself and be a little bit vulnerable to be kind to somebody and, and hope that the, the smile or the, the kind word is reciprocated. That, that there has to be some faith in ourselves to do that, right? That, that we have something to offer, that we can have a human connection, even if it's for a couple of seconds. And, and so many people, as you, as you pointed out, that is very heavy lifting. And, and you think about how that cultivates depression in a person, right? They feel so isolated that I don't feel there's enough goodness in me to go out into the world and to do something kind. I mean, a lot mm. of us labor under that. And I've labored under that at, at, at different points of my life. And, and it's, you know, it's a hard way to live. And it predisposes us to all sorts of unhappiness, whether it's the, the short-term soothing of drugs or alcohol, or it's the weight of depression or sleep disturbance, or just progressive social isolation, right? That it makes a big difference. And if, if we can be vulnerable enough to connect with each other even a little bit, then we're, we're, we're starting the needle moving then in the right direction, which is a direction that, of course, links back to the truth of the person, right? I mean, nobody comes out of the womb thinking that they have nothing to offer to anyone else or that they're youth, useless and worthless. Like, that's not built into us. So if we feel afraid and beleaguered and, and ashamed of ourselves, or if we feel angry and aggressive and we don't even know why, I mean, th- these are things that come into us artificially over time. 
And, and my thesis, and I believe the world around us shows us this writ large, is that that change, those changes that happen in us happen through trauma and that we can understand them and we do not have to be guided by it, right? Like the idea that trauma is driving the car and we're in the back seat, right? As the trauma is, you know, yanking us all over the place and threatening to drive us off the road and kill us. Like we, it doesn't have to be that way. And we can start one small step at a time to understand ourselves, anchor ourselves to the things that we know or that we knew, right, are true about us that we can access again and be in the world in ways that are, that, that are much more consistent with what we choose, right, with how we want to be in the world. It's a process of being reflective and intentional, but it's also a process of simplifying, right? Good mental health is always consistent with simplicity and simple principles. Once things become too complicated, we're straying away from good mental health. So part of the goal here is to anchor back to some of those first principles of just being healthy in ourselves and being healthy in the world around us. Mm. And the notion of being of being aware and intentional also, I guess that's really the, the question that pops up in, around that for me is, how do you actually know? So, so you can be aggressive, you can be anxious, you can feel depressed, you can feel like you're low energy, you can feel shame. You can feel all of these different things related to trauma or for completely different reasons. If you are in the grips of trauma and part of that is that it affects your level of self-awareness, how do we actually know if, how do we recognize if the thing that's happening underneath us, that is, that is a part of the, the way that we're feeling and moving into the world is trauma or, and then start to address it as such, or, or if it's something else, like how do we actually plant that seed of awareness where we can say, oh, this other thing is happening. And now I can start to take steps that are more aligned with how to address that. Right. I mean, it can, it may sound overly simplified, but, it, but, uh, but it's not right. That, that, that the first step is just to decide to look in, in ourselves and observe ourselves, which we so often don't do. So I'll give you an example of a person who was really underperforming in many, many roles, right? Uh, occupationally, romantically, right? You think, what? Why isn't this person's life better? And, and in trying to, to help the person in the early stages of our work, I, I started asking, what's going on inside? Like, what are you, what are you thinking inside? You know, what are you talking about inside? And, and, you know, there's, like a lot of us, we're not trained to do that. It's like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm this way, I'm that way. But no, no, what's the dialogue going on inside of you? And then what we learn is this person was saying over and over and over and over again how worthless they are. I mean, they were doing it hundreds and hundreds of times a day. And, and, and that was like a surprise. And it often is a surprise. Like, wait, this is going on inside of me, right? Or like every time something doesn't go perfectly, I say to myself, like, what an idiot. And, and it, we don't know that unless we look inside. And we say, well, are there these patterns inside of me? What am I saying to myself? How am I treating myself? And then how is that impacting me? The idea that when I was a kid, people would say that the soup that you're swimming in, what's the soup that we're swimming in, right? What, what's the environment I'm creating in myself? Is my life going to get any better? If I'm saying to myself, Myself, like several thousand times a day that I'm worthless, right? Or right? that I can't do anything right. And it, so where's that coming from, right? So it's just one example that, that the first step is to self-observe. Like what is actually going on inside of me? What's my internal dialogue like, right? What's my belief system about myself in the world? And then once we start doing that, we generate, we can generate curiosity, right? About ourselves. Like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, the person I'm telling you about was very interested and hadn't thought before 
that, that he was saying this to himself over and over and over and over again. Then we were able to look at the roots of that, and the roots of that were childhood trauma. And we were able to go back to, well, is that the person, is that really the person's belief? Do they really believe that they're worthless and hopeless because what other people hurt them when they were a kid? Is that really the truth? Is that what they would feel and say to someone else? And then the person is able to ground to a sense of self that is actually a true sense of self. That is how they really feel about themselves because they're anchoring to what to themselves before the trauma. And, and then life, you know, in this specific case and in many others like it, moves ahead in a way that's very, very different right? Like that person's life is tremendously better now than it was before. So it's just, it's one example, but but it shows that the answer to the question is to first look inside, right? It's as if there was a room in your house that was very scary and had many, many scary things in it. And you know what to do about it. Well, the first step is to like, okay, open the door and look at it. What's actually in there? There's nothing going on inside of us that we can't look at. That's too frightening to look at. And that's what keeps us really under the yoke of trauma is that we don't don't open that door, look inside, shine the light around and take stock of what's there. Why? Because we feel too guilty, too ashamed. Oh, if we look at that, we'll start crying and we'll never stop. Or if we tell anyone, they'll be so ashamed of us, they'll never talk to us again, right? Like, like these are the, these are the lies of trauma that trauma loves, right? Because it keeps it secret inside of us, right? And guilt and shame and anger and resentment and despair then fester inside of us. And if we start looking inside, we see, okay, there may be work to do, but there's nothing that we need to be afraid of. And that's a huge, that can create an absolute sea change in us. And I've seen that happen more times than I can count, right? The, the, the positive change that comes from looking inside of ourselves and ultimately not all of the time, but, but I think most of the time, the, the, the end result of that process is looking at trauma, processing trauma, being able to deal with the grief, going back to the beginning of our conversation, right? That comes along with trauma. And then life seems is simpler, right? Clearer and better. And it, it's, it's the opposite of all the chaos and fear and hiding and guilt and shame that so many of us are laboring under. And I know because I just see this day in, day out in my work over the last 20 years, in all aspects of my life, personal and professional, I see how this plays out in us and how it's not that hard to make really significant inroads of improvement. Mm, so powerful. And, and it really, it does start from that moment of just asking the question, you know, rather than you know, it, gaining the ability to just be, you know, a heartbeat curious about what's actually happening under the hood. Yes. Going inside. Yes. Um, and, and I agree. I think, you know, we are in a moment where a lot of people are asking questions like that. And I hope it's a moment of uh, inflection um, and change. So it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So sitting in this container of good life project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? Be nice to ourselves. Think about ourselves. Be nice to other people. Think about them too. Ground ourselves to some of the simple truths we knew when we were younger that it's so easy to forget as we move through life and its struggles, trauma-related or not. Ground to the good things we learned and knew were true. And for most of us, we're fortunate enough to know those things when we were younger. And if we don't, we can learn that we, we can help one another no matter what's going on inside of us or how bad we may feel. There's goodness to anchor to. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. I so appreciate you having me on. Thank you. 
hey, before you leave, if you really enjoyed and benefited from this episode, safe bet you'll also love the conversation that we had with Bessel van der Kolk about his embodied approach to integrating trauma. You'll find a link to Bessel's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Sparked. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.